Welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. Does anyone ever say to us, you know what, you've done a fucking good job because everyone else has sat on their arse and done nothing? No signs of that? No? Anyway, on today's show, the government remains weighed down by the concrete scandal as Sunak and Gillian Keegan try to dodge the blame and insist that most schools are not in danger of falling down. Plus, Sunak has put ally Claire Coutinho in charge of the Energy and Net Zero brief. We'll ask Labour MP and Net Zero champion Barry Gardner what he'll be keeping an eye on. Then, in the extra bit for Patreon backers, we discuss hot mic moments after Gillian Keegan's accidental honesty. Is it always ethical to share them with the public or can they cross a line? Before we begin, a reminder, as well as listening to us, you can now also watch the show on YouTube. Just go to youtube.com slash ohgodwhatnow. There's a link in the show notes. Let's meet the panel. Alex Andreu is a political commentator and a pillar of Oh God, What Now, the kind that doesn't crack and fall down. Hi, Alex. <laughs> Hello, Dorian. Um, you're an artistic fellow. Am I? Yes. What do you make of Theresa May's uh, divisive new official portrait? Do you know, I really love it. Um, I do too. Uh, it's, a, it's a little bit John Minton, a little bit El Greco in a bit. weird way, in that sort of elongated yeah. Greek Orthodox Taoist kind bit, of A little bit kind of Wyndham thing. Lewis, modernist. Yeah. Someone pointed out that Neue looks... Sachlichkeit. There's sort of, it's, it's a, a German school after expressionism wow. that kind of rejects any stylization for cold objectivity. Um, now, a lot of people say that if you know her, it's a portrait that's very unfair to her because oh. she's actually not like that. She's um, not Napoleonic. But it seems to me they have misunderstood it, actually. I, I think Syed Dai has captured her perfectly, peering forever with cold disdain at the fuckers who made her life <laughs> a, living her for the, a living hell for that entire period. That's the truth of the portrait. So when it hangs up, you want her to be forever. looking at yes. Johnson and Truss and so on. <laughs> someone... Yes, it's a portrait of her judging them. The question, of course, becomes, do they have to do one of Liz Truss? They do. Um and can they afford Damien Hurst to suspend a lettuce in formaldehyde and maybe call it the, the physical impossibility of taxes in the <laughs> mind of someone stupid? Uh, Hannah Fern is a columnist for the iPaper. Hi, Hannah. Hi. Uh, Labour-run Birmingham City Council has declared itself effectively bankrupt to the delight of Tories. However, several other councils have faced similar crises, including Tory-run Thurrock and Woking, which was now Lib Dem, but until recently Tory-run when the, the debts were run up. So does this suggest that there is a big problem with national funding rather than just a series of local mismanagement scandals? Yes, there's a couple of things going on. I think Labour being the prime focus of the Birmingham crisis is deeply unfair, actually. that Their extreme case is unique because it's caused by this huge backdated equal pay settlement, which is now, I think they've calculated it spiralled to 760 million. It's huge. And of course, it's right that they must pay that out to the women who weren't fairly paid over decades. But it's, of course, it's crippling them. Um, so there's a very specific reason. There's a very specific reason in Birmingham. There isn't a very specific reason in a lot of the Tory uh, poorly managed authorities. Thurrock, you mentioned Croydon, is very close to bankruptcy. Um, there are other Labour ones that are struggling as well, which Stoke-on-Trent is one. Um, and yes, there is a national picture here too, which contributes to the Birmingham crisis, uh, but is really responsible for all the others that are much nearer the edge. So the block grant to local authorities makes up about 75% of their overall income. 
It's only a fraction that comes from council tax and so on. Um, and that's just absolutely been decimated since uh, austerity began in, in 2010. So um, We're going to have more on, we on, will. on austerity time bombs later. But So central government of all stripes love to blame local authority mismanagement for issues that are very often caused by the relationship between central and local oh. government. And it's totally unfair to blame local authority management alone. Barry Gardner is the Labour MP for Brent North. He served as a junior minister under Tony Blair and held shadow cabinet posts under Jeremy Corbyn, including two related to climate change. He currently sits on the Energy Security and Net Zero Select Committee, and today he's our special guest. Hi, Barry. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, it's great. So there were rumours in recent weeks that Ed Miliband would be removed from the climate change and net zero briefing, Keir Starmer's reshuffle this week. He's still there. Um, are you relieved? Did you think that, that he was at risk? Because a lot of the talk was about that he had, you know... As that former leader, he was kind of, you know, throwing his weight around and this was kind of ruffling feathers. No, I look, I don't think so. I, I think it's a really good thing that we have somebody who has the the knowledge, the background and the commitment on climate change that Ed has in the shadow cabinet. Um, I think there were obviously tensions around the the dropping of the commitment to do 28 billion a year effectively for the, mm. the whole period of a future Labour government. Uh, and, and I think that was inevitable. Um, but I'm, I'm glad those have been worked out and I'm glad that Ed is still there driving this agenda forward. Because let's face it, if you say that a green prosperity plan is the only way that you're going to get sustainable growth into the economy, then it cannot make sense to say, but we'll wait for the economy to grow before we start the Green right. Prosperity Plan. Um, so, yes, of course, it'll take time to ramp it up. But I think we've got to see this happen as soon as possible, you know, and get it up to that full $28 billion as quickly as possible. You just look at the investment we're losing. Right. The way in which Biden has tackled this in the Inflation Reduction Act, it is huge, the investment that they're looking to put into their economy in terms of green growth. We need something that obviously we're nowhere near the size of the American economy, but we need something that proportionately for us is as big. Even 28 billion is not there but hey, let's let's make sure we get there as as quickly as possible. Well, you don't have to name names here, but when you had a Labour insider anonymously briefing against so-called tree huggers, and there was a little bit of kind of green scepticism being briefed, did you have a clear idea of who that might have been, or the kind of people that are maybe less keen on this? You know, you're the you just should never have asked me to come on a podcast. <laughs> you really should, because I never name names, I never leak. Um, I, I, oh, no, I don't want the name, but I wanted to know if you had an idea <laughs> privately of who that was. Um, look, um, my <laughs> private passions will remain just that, my private passions. Well, uh, does your privacy extend to uh, your opinion of the reshuffle overall, which has been yeah, seen sure. as a sort of favouring uh, one side of the party over another. Which side might that be? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's ambiguous. What, 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 what have the pundits said? <laughs> Tell me. They are suggesting that this is perhaps good news for the Labour right and less good news for the, uh, for the soft left. You, you know, I think how I would characterise it is it is an indication, and I believe a bad indication, to the to people who are 
interested, engaged and passionate about politics, that the way to get on in the political life is to go the route of the special advisor. We now have six former special advisors in the shadow cabinet. Do we have anybody who's actually run a business? We need breadth in the shadow cabinet. Right. Um, because the shadow cabinet has to reflect all strata of society. It has to be able to come in there and say, look, um, I can tell you for one, this just isn't going to fly. Um, and if everybody has been through the same uh, tutorial school of how to be a politician, then we're not going to get that breadth of understanding and that sense of conflict within the shadow cabinet that is required for good policy making. Um, but if everybody starts off from the same position, yeah. you don't have that sand in the oyster. And the frightening thing is that the same thing is true of journalism, of course, which is supposed to call politics and policy making to account. And yet there's a pipeline for that also. First this week, the Rack and Roll High School scandal gets worse. Rack, as I'm sure everybody knew before last week, stands for Reinforced Autoclaved Aerated Concrete. It's also known as Bubbly Concrete or Aerobar, so a fun thing to use for buildings full of children. <laughs> More than 100 schools have been asked to close, fully or partially because of the risk of collapse at the start of the new term. The Department of Education insists that most schools are unaffected, just as most Edwardian luxury ocean liners did not strike icebergs. Yet we always bang on about the one that did. And Education Secretary Gillian Keegan's hot mic snafu has deflected attention from Sunak's failure to fund school renovations as Chancellor, like all his predecessors, starting with George Osborne. Do you remember when Cameron promised to fix the roof while the sun was shining? <laughs> he literally did not fix the roofs. <laughs> Alex, um, like H-bombs and the jitterbug, uh, racks seemed like a good idea in the 1950s. Uh, it was <laughs> a cheaper, easier form of concrete, and it was used until 96 when it was found to be vulnerable to excessive corrosion and cracking. So we can't blame that on Sunak. What, what is the scandal part of this? Where is the failure? I mean, all of it, to be honest. It, it's a sort of perfect physical manifestation of 13 years of the Tories being in charge in every conceivable way. It makes physical the feeling that so many voters have that the country is literally falling apart at the seams in a dangerous way because of chronic neglect. It's impossible to brush off because Sunak made the last relevant decision on this. Right. Um, and so he can't say, oh, new management. This, this is his fuck up, as much as anyone else's. It has huge cut through since, by definition, it's a school gate issue. What, it's basically what the thing political um, election strategies fear the most. The right-wing press cannot defend it. And to be fair to them, they're not really trying to defend it. It tees up the coming election perfectly, not, not just in general terms, by the way, but in specific terms, like, look what happened to this school in your constituency. I mean, it will be on every leaflet, basically. And the last thing, I think, is that the comms reaction to it has just been extraordinary. I mean, <laughs> most schools not affected, <laughs> I think, is the funniest 
It's the most inept government comms that I I have ever seen. And, and you add that to Keegan believing we ought to be congratulating them on this. And I genuinely think if nothing else was going on, they would lose the next election on this issue alone. Well, how did it play out at PMQs? Yeah, it was an open goal. It was bitty. I'm not sure it was taken with panache. Um, but, you know, ultimately, the later news bulletins only pick up one quote. And the quote about, you know, it's like cowboy builders who basically blame everyone else, tell you you should be congratulating me on an effing good job, mm. even as the roof is falling in. And and making extending that to say the cowboys are running the country, I think it's a really dangerous one, and I think it will stick. I can see like a whole comms strategy, like a whole social media campaign, but, you know, because there are so many photos of them with hard hats and high vis jackets yeah. on, just begging for a caption. Well, I liked it when uh, Sunak going, "Why didn't Starmer bring this up in his big education speech?" And then it turned out he did he bring did. it up in his big education speech. And now all the people that I didn't notice at the time will have noticed and gone, well done, Starmer. And the amazing thing is Incredible. that number 10, um, as we record this afternoon, are doubling down on that, saying, no, he didn't mention concrete specifically. He just mentioned crumbling <laughs> school buildings. Which bit's crumbling? The, gl and, the glass? But what? you see, I'm not sure that number 10 going, look, Everything is falling apart in so many ways. You'll have to be more specific. Is <laughs> the slam dunk that they think? Barry, a lot of people won't really have heard about this issue before now. How long has it been known about in government? For example, I mentioned I, mean, I didn't know this. The ceiling had collapsed in, in Gravesend School in, in, in twenty eighteen. Yeah. So, yeah. how long has this been an issue without making the news? Oh. It, 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 a long, long time, because if you look, and here I think Bridget Phillipson takes huge credit, actually, because she has tabled in today, it was said over 100. I think it's actually about 150 questions in Parliament. She She's either raised it or written questions or oral questions. Um, she's been consistently on this issue and getting zero answers. Now, when the, the National Audit Office published its report on the 28th of June, I tabled a written question saying, please publish the list, right? Mm. Um, because I thought it's just simply wrong that we don't know now which schools we're talking about. Um, and I got this incredibly blasé response from the minister uh, saying, oh, you, you know, we're doing such a wonderful job. <laughs> which and they still think about it. Yeah, well, <laughs> what's the excuse for not publishing the list? If you just go, OK, here we have a list of what over 500 schools, I think, um, that are at risk. But we're not going to tell you what the which the schools are. Like, what's how are they spinning what, what that you one? Do, what you do when you do that is you make every single parent in the country afraid, mm. thinking, "Oh my God, is it my kid's school?" Yeah. Right. Well, their so, slogan should so, have been, "Most schools are not in danger, <laughs> but we're not going to tell you which <laughs> ones are." You know? I, but Just that, this, this is spice. what's so ridiculous about it that that if they'd come out and said, "Look." these are the schools that we think are at critical risk and that's why we're saying they have to close, then there'd be a lot of parents and teachers that would say, oh, goodness me, that, that that's my school. But 
a lot of parents would have been able to breathe a sigh of relief and say, well, thank God it's not my child that's going to be affected by this. And if they'd done it at the beginning of the summer, if they'd actually put the program in place, if they'd got this sorted, we wouldn't have been faffing around, you know, three days before the school term started with head teachers going into overdrive, working through the night because they've now got to send out another email to parents saying, no, what the Sunday Times said about our school closing, don't believe it, we really are going to be open on Monday. I mean, that's what happened in, in, my, in my constituency right. with one of my schools. It was completely badly handled because it threw everything into chaos. Hannah, Rack was very popular for a very long time. Um, so uh, the Houses of Parliament is looking on the parliamentary estate to see if it's been used there. The NHS is now looking into the use of RAC in its estate. Do we know anything yet about the risks to staff and patients or are they just sort of scrambling to find out? Yeah, well, I mean, the risk seems fairly significant. The NHS England has already told hospitals to be, and this is a quote, ready to evacuate <laughs> in case it's found on their sites. So and that is a fairly complex request, <laughs> ready to evacuate a hospital of critically people. ill people. Um, there are assessments ongoing now to see the scale of the issue. It's too early to actually say how big it's going to be. But we would already knew, just like they knew about the schools and weren't sharing that information, we now know that 19 hospital trusts are already affected. So that's the minimum. And where it does exist, it will be a significant problem. One of the worst affected hospitals that's already known to be having a crisis about this is Hitchingbrook in Cambridgeshire. And it's already had to ban obese patients, which they count as anyone weighing more than 19 stone, from having surgery in any of its operating theatres except on the ground floor because of the risk that the additional weight in those rooms will result in the floor collapsing. Can I relate a and personal experience? And that ban experience? remains in place. I had a small procedure in December and the hospital, a major, major London teaching hospital, had to weigh me to make sure that I wasn't above a certain weight uh, because otherwise I would need a recovery room in the ground floor because Almost they're having that's problems. Absolutely. They, oh, they told me, they oh, told well, they me told that they're having doubts about quite it. Rude. And I mean, I'm. I'm a robust lad, but I'm hardly, you know, mm. Mr. Creosote. I'm not Jabba the Hutt. So, it, you know, it's, we're not talking about a massive... Right. Um, no, it won't be a small number of patients, no, right? No, exactly. It won't be so a this small is a very si significant situation. And obviously the NHS is not in the best place to weather it at all. That That's why, obviously, why the government has reduced the number of doctors, reduced the number of, of <laughs> hospital staff, reduced the number of nurses. It's to make sure the buildings are safe. Keep I mean, I, I don't know why you don't They're understand They're going to sell it. all the equipment because that's perfect, quite heavy. Perfectly plain. I do think the fact that, that we know already that 19 trusts are dealing with this and yet it hasn't been in the public consciousness just demonstrates exactly like the schools that this has been understood by the government for a long time, but they have just not spoken to the general public about this significant risk to their mm. health. And and the, as a working parent of school-aged children, the idea that you think it's acceptable to wait until the first day of term to, to say, oh, well, we might have to homeschool with, um, you know, video links again, like the pandemic for the first, up until Christmas. I'm sorry, that's not possible for people who work. <laughs> Who's going to be at home with the six-year-old? Well, you don't want to go back to, monitoring to lockdown their, homeschooling. Yeah. The, these children not. have been the worst served, I think, any of us can remember. Um, you know, they're the ones who've had the the whole experience of COVID and isolation. They're the ones who've had remote learning. They're the ones who've had the problems with the examinations. 
every, every time it's these kids, this generation of kids that has, has had to face up to the problems. And this is caused by, let's face it, a government that says we don't believe in the public good. We don't believe in the public good of schools. We don't believe in the public good of hospitals. We don't believe in the public good of, of the court service, you know, because it's the court service too that, you know, they're closing closing uh, some of the, the magistrates' courts. If these things don't function in society, you don't have a functional society. Mm. And, and that's what this past 13 years well, has done. Well, I mean, Labour at the moment is very careful about, about spending commitments and about ways of raising money to spend. But, I mean, it's obviously can take pleasure in the kind of, you know, the Tory um, scandal over this. Schadenfreude is is not a word that passes the shadow. (laughs) (laughs) Shadowfreude. Shadowfreude. (laughs) (laughs) But is is this going to necessitate pledges on rebuilding schools? I mean, that is something the last Labour government can be proud of. Absolutely. Uh, And it seems that, you you know, that's one thing they're going to have to promise. Yes, of course. Look, um, you you can't criticise the government for not doing enough and then say that we're not going to do it. And and I'm absolutely confident that we will. The key thing, I think, in terms of the, the pledges that Labour has made on the economy, and, and this is what you're driving at, how, how do we square the circle here? Um, the key thing is that we will only borrow to invest. We're not going to, I pray God, we're not going to go down the route of austerity because we've seen the impact of that, not just in in the appalling poverty that some people are living in in our society at the moment, but also because actually economically it doesn't get you out of the mess. You, you haven't grown the economy through austerity. What we do need to do is we need to make sure that we tax fairly. We make sure that the burden of taxation is not on the poorest people in society and that we actually invest in our economy to grow the economy. That is just the common sense that I think the Labour Party has to deliver. I mean, in in defence, what I would offer is that I notice more and more there's a a really different treatment by the media of the Conservative government and the Labour opposition, almost in reverse roles. Like, for a week now, Labour has been pressed incessantly. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to pay mm. for it? And Labour is saying, we don't even know how many schools. I mean, you right. know, if I tell you, yes, we will fix an unknown number of schools, your next question will be, how will you pay for it? To which I can have no answer. The government announces we will spend whatever it takes. Soon I can PMQs goes, yes, it will be new money. And we go back to the studio and no one asks a minister how, are you going to pay how for much it? is it going to cost and how are you going to pay for it? And they're the fucking people who will actually have to budget for it. Well, so, so there's a but, but, weird... But actually, who will have to pay for it? God, I mean, we God, will God willing, <laughs> God willing, it'll be under a Labour government, uh, but it will be the public that ends up paying for it one way or another. It's kind of yeah. sweet that they're treating Labour as if they're already in government yeah. and the Tories as an irrelevance. I mean, but before you're in the actual department and you don't have the numbers, you can't do a line by line budget. Sure. Although politically, I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing for Labour because they're able to keep saying the government has failed to give us what yeah. we need to, to yeah, put yeah, together sure. a decent plan. Uh, can, I, can I just go back, though, to, to what you were saying about Sunak not escaping this? 
You see, I, I, I think he's had a pincer movement against him this week, really, hasn't he? Because you had Nick Gibb saying that he was asked for the two, you know, the 200 uh, by the department, the 200 schools to be refurbished. And he said, no, no more than 50. But you've also had Jonathan Slater, the, the former yeah. permanent secretary in the department, saying the Treasury for the whole time that Sunak was was the Chancellor had been told that they needed to rebuild, not what they were asked for. They needed to rebuild not 200, but between three and 400 schools every year. And that's what he refused. So this really does land back in Sunak's lap very fairly and squarely. And also, in fact, the entire this entire period of Tory rule that Jeff Barton, head of the Association of School and College Leaders, uh, has recalled Michael Gove gleefully scrapping Labour's Building Schools yeah. for the Future programme in 2010. And like 50 a year, yeah. given how many schools you do the numbers? 22,500, they keep saying. It's schools in the country. Yeah. Which means... But so that's in total. Which not means a cycle of 450 years. Like, mm. you get to refurbish a school 400, <laughs> once every 400, which, you know, to me, that live, lives in a relatively new 90s conversion, and I've already had to redo the flat roof once after 25 years, 450 <laughs> years seems like an unrealistic expectation of a building. Uh, Hannah, finally, we will talk about Keegan's gaffe uh, later in the extra bit, um, but she also told schools on Mike. Uh, to get off their backsides and investigate whether or not they have a rack problem. What, she, what, uh, what, what is it that she's got with backsides? <laughs> get off their arses, get off their backsides. She's, she's a, she's a <laughs> bum person. That's her, her preference. Um, now, it's true. She's talking about 5% of schools that have not responded to yes. government inquiries about that. So, yes, they, they, they should indeed... Uh, you know, get on it. Sure. Um, she should have but, sent them out before the beginning but, of the school holidays, but, though, but, maybe. But is she... Do you think she's cut out for this job? Tone-wise, she seems rather sort of ratty. It's an interesting combination, isn't it? I think there's always people who are going to express themselves like that in politics. It's a very fast-moving, quite aggressive business. But it is tone-deaf, and particularly for day one of the school year. Is it, it was addressed particularly to head teachers, mm. As if head teachers don't have enough to think about on day one of the school year. It shows a real lack of understanding of how they operate and kind of work there pressure they're under and along with the sort of effing and jeffing that we've heard this week <laughs> it does feel like she hasn't got the sensitivity or the foresight really to work on such an important brief it's funny though because you say oh you want politicians to be sort of less you know varnished and less robotic sure, and not just being the same with... line and then you, she does it and you're like not like that <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, but, i think but... when you're dealing with kids i i think throwing in f-bombs every two minutes isn't probably the right one it's too much ego as well i feel like she's very ego driven and that mm. is okay in some Briefs, and I think actually in business it can be a great brief, but I don't think schools. Who was the, who the, right was the person that right gave the, the who threw the V sign? Uh, no, not V sign. She she gave the middle finger, finger. Middle finger. Sorry, universities minister <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Andrea Jenkins. I want to say right. It's got that kind of energy. Yeah, it has that vibe. Yeah. Can we just go behind what she said though? It seems to me that, and we can all laugh at the the gaff and all the rest mm -hmm. of it. But if we go behind what she was saying, she was actually pointing the finger at her predecessors. Oh, absolutely. And she was saying, you know, and 
it was Kit Malthouse, mm. right, immediately before her. I can't remember who it was. But it's a long list. It's a long long. I wouldn't be surprised if Shaps did it what, at some point One thing for a I can't understand is how Gove is, is getting away with not being the prime suspect here, partly because... Uh, his relationship to Grenfell, which is obviously a massive buildings catastrophe and which he actually received, and I thought fairly at the time, a huge amount of praise for his engagement with leaseholders who were left dealing with the costs of the cladding crisis. Um, but actually... And you know, who still are. And who, of course, who still are. It's a massive ongoing situation. In fact, uh, there's still about 10,000 buildings that still have cladding on, um, of which 50 are high rise. So ongoing massive issue which he did show a lot of leadership on but then we discover that behind that leadership was him going oh there's another building situation Mm. going on here that I'm just going to wash my hands Mm. of because it's too costly and too complicated and I don't want to introduce that to the public so any sort of sense of public moral leadership that he gained from his relationship with Grenfell is just washed away and yet we're not seeing him being exposed to that criticism I don't understand why plenty well Julian Keegan will be on the case (laughs) The punchline, incidentally, to this whole thing is that Labour obtained figures that show that only four schools have been rebuilt or refurbished in the last two years, which makes the actual rate two a year. So if you wanted an algebraic sort of representation of failure, needing three to four hundred, asking for two hundred, agreeing to 100, which then in money terms becomes 50, and the delivery is two per year. We're getting into thousands of year time spans here. It's quite, it's mind-blowing. Now let's have a question from one of our Patreon backers in But Your Emails. Um, it's quite a big question that we will try to answer quickly. Okay. <laughs> Kevin McAvoy asks, having just read Ian's book, How Westminster Works, I think this is Ian, he's secretly <laughs> plugging his book. One of the main problems with our political system is short-termism, Grant Shapps being an extreme example. Our democracy centred around five yearly elections is a significant contributory factor. It means that crumbling schools can be ignored as long as they're going to collapse on the next education secretary or next government's watch. How do you think more strategic mid and long term planning can be achieved while still maintaining at least the illusion of living in a democracy? I mean, that means like you go, like totalitarianism is good for strategic planning, but, but bad for everything else. <laughs> um, so, yes, what kind of reforms and... Uh, um, you can't quote from Ian's book. Um, like, how do you get to that? Because the, the, it's the hard. thing he talks it's hard, about okay. is the I way mean, that ministers just move too quickly. You're talking about the, the only example that I can extrapolate a little bit is when um, the Labour, the previous Labour government handed over the reins to the interest rates to the Bank of England, statutorily made it independent. Or when Osborne, probably the only good thing he did, handed over scrutiny of the accounts, as it were, to the uh, Office of Budget Responsibility and created that, which I think was a good innovation. I think you have to do something like that. I think it has to be a non-departmental agency that sits slightly outside government and demands longer-term spending plans. Because, okay... You know, the the forecasts are unreliable the further away they get. But you could certainly make decisions 
for a five and ten year um, timeline instead of just next year and then we change it again in six months, which is what tends to happen. So maybe an external body that demands long-term plans for the NHS, for education, for, you know, that kind of thing. And maybe House of Lords reform would help with that. Maybe having a second chamber that is elected and the election of which, or the selection of which, I don't, I don't know what model it might be, is not at the same time as the Commons change over so if you if you have a sort of midway election for a, the second chamber or something like that, um, there is a model that does work at the moment. That's very much like what you've just said, Alex, and that is the Committee on Climate Change. It is the independent committee. It sets a long-term target. It sets interim five-year budgets that have to be achieved. Mm that are by law the government has to meet um, and okay it's not on track to meet yeah. them um, but so far when the target has come up it has met them okay so I agree with you that that, that model of setting an independent body that not that advises government but that advises parliament that is statutorily obliged to report yep. to parliament and that has binding legal authority over government um, is exactly the way that, that you can achieve that. But I think you would achieve that in, in different theatres, if you like. The other way I would suggest is to look at what the French do in terms of the length of their presidency. Now, we don't have a presidential model, but seven years and with most presidents thinking they'll get another seven You've got a period of 14 years mm. where actually you are going to be the accountable person. Mm. Longer spells between elections would give them that slightly longer perspective because it, I totally disagree with you over the House of Lords. I think they're doing a phenomenally good job at the they moment are, are holding the government to job. account and and to introduce elections into the House of Lords which were staggered with, uh, with the Commons elections would simply mean that politicians were were in election nearing mode in one form or another the entire time um, and, and little real legislative progress would be made. But, I mean, that's a reform of the House of Lords is too big for yeah. this podcast. Sure. Um, Hannah, what is your cure for shapsism? Well, mine, well, my suggestion was That's my was new word be... for basically people that just keep moving from department to department. <laughs> it was John Reed. No, come on, go back to the, the, the original and the best. John the Reed. Okay. Ten departments, for goodness sake. Wow. You know? Okay. But shapsism, I prefer shapsism to readism. But, you know, same phenomenon. So my suggestion was going to be much less complex or indeed sophisticated. I mean, ultimately, there's a difference between legislation and policy. There's a lot of policy and a lot of decisions that are made that are not rooted in deep legislation. So getting rid of short-termism involves passing more complex legislation. It is more complicated because it just makes it so much harder for the next incumbent mm. to undo. Obviously, it can be undone. The scrapping of the Child Poverty Act was an example of you know, when people make bizarre, wrong-headed decisions and undo good policy. But um, it's much more difficult to do. And, it, and, and doing so involves a large public discussion. It becomes a media-worthy yeah. issue. Um, so that means at least there's a debate. 
Uh, that's my that. only suggestion. So there you go, Kevin. Or, or Ian. I believe you really are. <laughs> Kevin. Next up, Rishi Sunak claims to care about net zero, but does he really? He's just appointed his former aide, Claire Coutinho, to the brief of energy security and net zero this week, replacing Grant Chaps. <laughs> Yay! Um, a tough gig to give to a mate. What's in her entree? Barry, let's start with you. Earlier this year, Coutinho wrote to Sadiq Khan to oppose the ULES expansion, which doesn't seem like a great omen uh, for a job which involves reducing emissions. Can I just point out that Grant Shapps, her predecessor, had written to Sadiq Khan during the pandemic uh, <laughs> to, to insist that he did impose <laughs> the ULES. But, you know, look, consistency in government is to devoutly to be wished, but not often achieved. So what do you think of her uh, appointment? This is your sort of department. Do you, I mean, how much do you know about her and her commitment to these issues and experience and so on? Straight answer, I, I don't know her commitment to these issues, but I know what she needs to get on with and do. Um, and that is she needs to sort out the winter crisis that is looming in terms of household energy bills. And she needs to do that in two ways. The first is that she needs to just ramp up the energy efficiency of of buildings in this country. There was a a, a time when we were um, actually insulating hundreds of thousands of buildings a year. Um, Insulate Britain. That has gone. We need that because the, the cheapest energy is the energy you don't use. Right. So you've got to insulate those homes. You've got to do the energy efficiency as an absolute priority. And all the schemes that the government has, has put out for this have failed and they've acknowledged that they've failed. The second thing is that they need to look at what the energy supply companies are doing. And, you know, you've just had one of them, E.ON, that had, what was it, a five million pound fine um, for the, their failure in customer service. You've got British Gas that's just made a 900% profit over its last year's profit. And yet we have people who literally are in mental health crisis because they cannot afford to feed their children and keep the lights on in, in their homes. It is not acceptable that... These companies are making huge profits at the same time as the very poorest in our society are suffering as badly as they are from all of the cost of living crisis and the energy crisis. The government should extend the windfall tax. Um, prior to the windfall tax, the tax that was levied against oil and gas producers in this country was the lowest in the developed world. No, not, not the developed world, the lowest in the world. So this idea that these companies are overtaxed, and don't forget that all the new development that's going on in the, the North Sea Basin that they've just allowed, totally against everything that um, the International Energy Agency says should be happening, everything against the, what the IPCC says should be happening in terms of new exploration and, and drilling, um, that is being paid for not by those oil and gas companies, 91 pence in the pound of that development is being paid by you and me as taxpayers in a tax break that we are giving to the oil and gas producers. Now, they're contributing nine pence to, in every pound spent on that development, and they're getting 100% of the profits. What, 
why are we not? Why why are the poorest people in our society who are paying their taxes having to subsidize those energy companies? It is simply wrong. And I welcome a, a new Secretary of State coming in, but she needs to understand that people in this country are hurting badly, and it's their energy bills that are causing it. Uh, the government's flagship energy security bill is returning to the Commons 14 months after it began, with several concessions to, to green sceptic backbenchers. What sort of shape is it, is it in? Well, the the amendments that were put through, which would have been positive amendments, um, were all voted against by the government mm-hmm. yesterday when, when when the bill went through. So it, it's not in a good shape. And I I just hope that you know down the other end, their lordships are able to do that sterling job that we talked about earlier and uh, and actually send it back to us. Let, let's just take one of the things that the, even the the conservatives have been fighting amongst themselves over. Um, And that's if you take onshore wind, Hmm. okay? The failure to press on with onshore wind, which is the cheapest form of energy production that we have. It is, of course, carbon uh, neutral. You know, it's a renewable form of energy. Um, The cheapest that we can possibly have. The failure to implement that we're told, is costing £182 on every person's bill in this country each year. £5.1 billion a year. That is just madness. And, and this government are still arguing amongst themselves as to whether they should allow it and under what conditions. And a fudge was done so that the amendment was, was, mm, was dropped. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... You know, both sides will go away and claim victory, right? But nothing will actually get constructed. The the onshore wind that we need to power this country will not happen as a result. And and this is just why we, we really need vision here. You know, you started off, you know, asking me about Ed Miliband. He has had this vision since 2008. He understands Mm, this. mm. And that's why we really need a government that's going to come in and just drive it forward. Uh, Hannah, Politico uh, did a piece listing five times that Sunak caved on the energy bill, including Mm. onshore wind is is, is the big one. Um, Now, is this because he's weak or because he just doesn't really care and the net zero pledge, and obviously this isn't just about net zero, but, you know, those kind of pledges, something that he's inherited. I don't know his personal attitudes behind the Because that was the Zach Goldsmith allegation, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yes, that this isn't his area of interest, that he just takes no, no personal interest in it. I don't know what his personal attitudes are, but he's definitely very aware of one thing, which is the fact that... Fo- really focusing on all, all all these issues that we're we're troubled about today doesn't deliver any return on the Tory demographic that he is most scared of losing next year, and that is the older centre right generation who've started to not trust him on the economy. And I just think you know the cost of living really feeds into that. These are the people who didn't like his socialist. I'm using air quotes socialist uh, furlough scheme. So it, it's ecological idiocy if you ask us, but. It makes a lot of political sense. And this is the way modern politics and Westminster, I mean, Ian talks about it all the time. The way it works now doesn't serve us as a nation at all. Well, this is also kind of economic idiocy, surely, because, well, yeah, you know, why absolutely. would industries invest in big infrastructure if, you know, sort of NIMBY backbenchers have the power 
to block it. Well, well, that, that's that's absolutely true. But that actually isn't entirely new to to these set of, of policies either. Sure, if, you, sure. if you think about fracking, there was the creation of all these investment funds and so on, and and, and business structures to facilitate that only to abandon it. So it works both ways for both the policies that we might roundly support and those that I personally might right, be sceptical right, right. about. Yeah, I mean, business doesn't respond to constant flip-flopping, Brexit being the ultimate uh, mm. screw-up with that. Because... That was just a flop, wasn't it, rather than a flip-flop? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. What you end up with is that gr- yeah. ground of uncertainty that means no one can invest. Um, Alex, regarding Coutinho's uh, role, Barry talked about the... Really, the most urgent problem, like this winter crisis, is yeah. fuel bills. It's because it's going to be bad because the government scheme comes to an end. Yeah. And so I think we've, talk, we've talked before legacy. about the gap between the government's rhetoric and lived reality, and that's where you lose elections. And with government pretending everything is going swimmingly now, people will see their energy bills actually go up this winter because the government scheme is coming to an end. But did you see what Sunak said at at PMQs? He said that in in answer to a question, but we've halved people's energy bills. This this is this is unbelievable, and that's that discrepancy that it's, you're talking I mean, about. It's like because Jeremy Hunt, fact, who believes they've that been doubled. halving inflation yeah. to five yeah. percent puts money in people's pockets, and it's like, what are you talking about? Not, you are the chancellor. Stop talking. But, uh, it's not how numbers knows work. That's not how the average person understands it. That people don't understand. But it's that not that's like still reducing arise. inflation is not the same as like bringing prices down. No. Yeah, no, and, I agree with that, Hannah. But but then he runs into the problem of reality. He runs into <laughs> yeah, it, the problem of people opening their bill yeah. in the November exactly. and seeing exactly. that saying they it's can't not afford half. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, sorry, but, Alan, <laughs> looking. Into the future. Yeah, um, I am. The UK am. is currently not on track to hit its 2050 target, surprise, surprise. Um, obviously, we're anticipating a change of government. Do you think it will get there? No, I don't think so. I, I know that there's an optimistic and hopeful part of me that wants to believe it. But what I see in the last few months is that This government has taken an issue on which the nation was this close to reaching consensus, actually, Mm. and they've taken it back into contention. It's it's absolute political vandalism that they have done this for minimal gains, Mm. I suspect, you know, for, you know, not losing... 150 seats rather than 200. It is shocking that they have chosen to take an issue that's this important on which the nation was so close to saying, yeah. I can't actually share the detail because it hasn't been published yet, but I'm writing a piece for the eye on that at the moment. And it's not even going to be that amount of seats. Looking at the council seats that have been affected by LTNs and the debate over that, it's it's literally nothing. Can I offer something so, for your piece that is a perfect example of feel this? Feel free, although I've already Richard fired, Drax <laughs> raged that, uh, you know, we are imposing this cultish net zero mentality on people, right? 
He called it cultish. This is proper environmental denial. He's the MP for South Dorset, mm. a constituency that, that is looking at losing entire conurbations to rising sea levels mm. in the next 20 years. Mm. It's like, what are you doing? I mean, even as a politician, what are you doing? The point is they've made it into an issue of identity politics. And, and that's been the dividing yeah. line. Mm. Definitely and, and you're absolutely right. In 2008, we actually had real concerns consensus, cross-party consensus yep. on this, and they've trashed it for the sake of identity politics. And it is tragic, but, you know, I think we should be optimistic about 2050, um, not just because I hope we'll have a Labour government in, in, in a year's time, but I do think that business is actually taking a leadership role here. Yeah. And you may say, well, isn't that tragic that the government is not in the lead? Yeah. But actually business now recognises that sustainability, if you know, is, is key to their business. Yeah. And so business will drive this and they will bring a recalcitrant government to the table. That That's my hope. I mean... Uh, you're right. The, the the Committee on Climate Change says that we're way off track in meeting our current targets, right? So I am an optimist. I'm I'm just a an optimist who can't see any rational basis for his optimism. <laughs> the best kind. <laughs> but Barry, final question for you um, is: I think about counteracting, I suppose, this growing. It's not full. It's not always full on climate denial, but it's certainly opposition to net zero. Now, Mog. Uh, opposes the energy bill. Uh, he tweeted... Mog the cat? Mog, this is what we call Jacob Rees-Mogg. Oh, right. Yes. Okay. Um, opposed the energy bill, tweeting, cheap energy drives growth and prosperity. The energy bill will make us cold and poor. Um, fact check to come. Um, so th this is... <laughs> Citation. This is, yes. This is one of those arguments. <laughs> Another, of course, is that it hurts the economy. But Energy UK claims net zero could boost the economy by 240 billion by 2050. So... Is this the key political challenge to tie, you know, what is good for the climate to prosperity, to um, lower bills and so on? And have do you think that Labour, as we are coming up to an election, has sort of cracked that messaging? Because it's not just an election issue. It is a public consent issue that if it gets into government, you, you know, they're going to need to sell this to to voters. Yeah, look, you're absolutely right, and and the the key thing is this: the younger your voter profile, the more they get it. The younger generation are coming through and saying, "Yeah, this does affect me. This does affect my kids. I am concerned about this because I'm going to live through it." And and whether it's you know drought and, and floods in other parts of the world that are affecting our food security, whether it's the refugee crisis that's going to come as a result of coastal inundation and whole populations having to move, whether it's the conflicts that are going to happen because of all of that. This is my life you're mm. talking about. So you ask the question, is the Labour Party getting that message out there sufficiently? I want us to do more. I'm confident that in government, we will deliver the sort of transformative green agenda that is required. But we need to be giving people hope. We need to be saying to people, this isn't just about being ecologically pure. This is about your wallet. This is about your life. This is about having a better life, a more prosperous life, a life that's got good, clean jobs. A more comfortable a life. More comfortable physically, life. I mean, the, the temperatures. Everything and... is right yeah. here. And 
And also, you know, this government talks about leadership in the world. My God, this is the one thing that we had leadership in the world on, and we're losing it so badly. The moral leadership that we were showing and and the actual leadership on climate legislation that we were showing and setting really good targets was great. The fact is we're not delivering on those targets and we need to. And that's the show. Thank you to Alex. My pleasure. Hannah. Thank you. And Barry Gardner. Great to be with you. Stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And the traditional thank you to our generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. Search Oh God, What Now? Patreon. Big thanks from me to Mike Freeman and Alan Garriog. Thank you for your support to Doug Whitelaw and Keith Anderson. Welcome aboard, Serene Sakia. I hope I got that right, and Peter Taylor. We'll see you all next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Dorian Linsky with Alex Andreu and Hannah Fern. The producer was Chris Jones. Managing editor, Jacob Jarvis. Group editor, Andrew Harrison. And audio production was for me, Robin Lieber. Oh God, what now? It was a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, hot mic moments. They can be highly entertaining. They can also be very damaging, from Gordon Brown's bigoted woman remark in 2010 to Gillian Keegan's fucking good job. But what are the ethical issues around leaking these candid moments? Um, Hannah, why are they so powerful, these broadcast clips versus a reported quote? Because people say quite a lot of things that get that can support it, and it just doesn't land like that. No, it's because PR culture has ruined political journalism. <laughs> so we never get anything interesting anymore. And we've got Alistair Campbell to thank for that. Blair's was the first government to really get a handle on communications in any kind of professional way. And it does. Everyone runs like that now. And it, it's just hard to get a squeak out of anyone, really, um, which works brilliantly when you need to be on message as a politician. But for journalists like me, it's bloody boring. So when, But politicians are human. So when they let go... They, they generally reveal something about what's really going on. So it's not just about seeing the human side of the people that we don't always see the human side of. It's also about them telling a story that has been previously hidden. And, you know, with Gillian Keegan, one thing that I think has been under-discussed, and I got absolutely ripped for talking about this on Twitter this week, but I'm just going to repeat it again because I believe it so fully. Right. What she was That was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast, which is it's very good this week. So if you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what now every week without ads and a day early, you can sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as three pounds a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, every Monday morning, and some merchandise offers. Thank you for listening and see you next week. <laughs>